Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's like a little beautiful slot canyon. And I guess light pours through the ceiling um, and lights it up in a really spectacular way. People also repel into Goblin's Lair, and that you need to um, be part of a guided canyoneering tour. So maybe we'll put that on the list. Well, after you call and talk to the manager about the bunk beds, we may be banned from Goblin Valley State Park. <laughs> you know, Could you they're... use a different name? <laughs> <laughs> and not mine? <laughs> This is the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, stories from our journey to all the U.S. national parks and other public lands. I'm Matt Smith. And I'm Karen Smith. We're the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue series of books. Today, we're heading to southern Utah, but we're not visiting the five national parks. Instead, we're taking you to 20 other spectacular public lands that you'll want to add to your list of places to see. More than 70% of Utah consists of public lands. From state parks to national monuments to Bureau of Land Management sites, the places we'll be talking about in this episode are all unique and diverse. And did we say spectacular? Our list of 20 places includes scenic drives and hiking trails to waterfalls, slot canyons, arches, and ancestral Puebloan ruins. Thanks for joining us today as we travel through southern Utah beyond the mighty five national parks. All right, before we get started on our 20 places, we wanted to talk about our recent road trip to Utah. Uh, We did a really fun loop kind of spontaneously, um, and then we just sort of added things on as we were planning it last minute. We did, and we did a few new things. Uh, We started our visit to Utah after a couple of days of driving. We went to Goblin Valley State Park first. We stayed in a yurt, which we always wanted to stay in a yurt there. And then when we were there, it's really close to the San Rafael Swell, and there's a bunch of slot canyons there. One of our favorites is the Little Wild Horse Slot Canyon. Right. We went back and did that one, which was fun because we hadn't been there in, what did we figure, like five years or so. So it was fun to see that again. And then from there, we drove to Moab for the night and we just had a brief visit to Arches. We went in uh, for the sunset like we tend to do because it's so pretty at that time of night. Yeah. And then we went down south of Moab, down to the Needles District of Canyonlands, did a hike there. Then the next day went to Natural Bridges National Monument after spending the night in Monticello. 
Yeah, there is a fantastic hike that we love in Natural Bridges National Monument where you walk under the arches. But you know what, Matt? I'm getting ahead of myself because we're going to talk about that in the 20 places. You are getting ahead of yourself. <laughs> so from there, we were making our way towards Page. So after we hiked for half a day, we drove down the very fun Moki Dugway and through Monument Valley. And wasn't Monument Valley just so amazing to see? Well, we didn't really see it because <laughs> there was a dust storm and it was like a whiteout, but it was more like a beige out because there was so so much sand in the air. Never, We've never seen Monument Valley that way. That was pretty spectacular. It was like the apocalypse, honestly, because everything had this yellow hue and you could make out the towers and the buttes of Monument Valley, but, but everything was covered in like dust and sand and it was wild driving through there. Yeah, it was dusty. It was, it was uh, blowing the car around, but we made it to Page, uh, spent the night in Page, got our fishbowl margaritas uh, for <laughs> dinner. Then the next day we took a boat trip to Rainbow Bridge National Monument, which was very cool. Right. That's off of Lake Powell, which we talked about in our episode last week. Then the next day when we left Page, we were making our way towards Bryce Canyon. So we did a, a cut through on Cottonwood Canyon Road, which we've taken before. That's kind of a fun dirt road to take. It actually takes you up to the beautiful Kodachrome Basin State Park, which is on our list, as well as Willis Creek Slot Canyon. Uh, we hiked that. We're going to talk about that today. And then we ended up in Bryce Canyon National Park. And we had enough time in Bryce to take a short hike there before the sun went down. This time of year, the sun goes down pretty early. That's right. We were yeah. moving quickly <laughs> on that hike because it's about a three-miler, and we knew that uh, we didn't want to be down in the amphitheater in the dark. Uh, but we wanted to talk briefly, just really briefly, about our stay in the Goblin Valley Yurt because a couple of things went wrong. <laughs> well, a few things. We, we really did enjoy our stay, and we loved those yurts. We had stayed in a similar yurt in Dead Horse Point State Park uh, a couple years ago. So we were in Goblin Valley, and we had a little issue with the heater in the yurt. It didn't work. And it got cold. It was nice in the daytime, but then, you know, like it is in Utah in November, the temperature starts to drop once the sun goes down. And here's the thing. This is not like staying in the hotel. The entrance kiosk closes at 5. So after 5 o'clock, you're completely on your own in that there is no one to call for help. <laughs> so about 7 o'clock in the evening, we went to turn on the heat. There is this what looks like a wood stove, but actually it's run by a propane tank. Um, and so we went to turn it on and uh, nothing happened. Yeah, we couldn't get any combination of the switches, the thermostat on the wall to work. So anyway, it wasn't that big of a deal because uh, as it turned out, it only got down to low 40s in there <laughs> at was... night. And we had sleeping bags. We were fine. It was 44 degrees inside the yurt when we woke up. Uh, but what we figured out, we think, happened is that the pilot light had gone out. And um, so there was that. And then, well, okay, so there are bunk beds. Um, and I always like to sleep on the top bunk, right? But this was a weird set of bunk beds in that there was no ladder and it wasn't up to code because there were no side railings above the mattress and anybody sleeping on the, that top bunk could take a rollover and end up on the floor. I was a little concerned about you falling out of bed, mainly because the bunk underneath it is a queen size and there's an overhang. So um, I know where you would land. 
<laughs> if you fell out. You didn't want a hundred pounds of dead weight falling on you in the middle of the night. <laughs> yeah, or you. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> I mean, you're because you're not a hundred pounds. You're under a hundred pounds. It's, oh it's no, 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 no! Getting worse. No, yeah, yeah, no, no okay. backpedaling yeah. on that one. <laughs> And by the way, your concern for my safety is is touching. So thank you for that. I was going to break your fall. <laughs> also, I didn't want to be trying to climb up and down in the middle of the night to use the restroom with no ladder. So it was fine because there's a futon. I slept on the futon. But I am seriously going to put on my Karen hat and uh, call the manager there because I looked it up. It is code that the railings on the top bunk of a bunk bed have to be at least five inches above the mattress. And again, there is no railing above the mattress on this bunk. So yeah, I'm going to have have to call and have just yeah, a little talk, shower. Talk to the manager. <laughs> if he doesn't take care of the issue, make, maybe ask for his supervisor. Um, you know, this is, this is hurting my Make Karen Great Again campaign. <laughs> I'm just telling you. So the other fun the fun thing that happened that night was we had both fallen asleep, all was quiet, and all of a sudden an alarm went off inside the yurt. We didn't know as we're scrambling to get up in the dark, is it the is it the fire alarm? Is it the carbon monoxide alarm? And of course the second we jump up, turn on the lights, the alarm stops. <laughs> Yeah, it, it repeated itself every 20 minutes, and it, it wasn't much of an alarm. It was more of a loud chirping noise, but enough to wake us up, and it was short enough that it you had to be quick on your feet to detect where it was. It it went off probably, this, this lasted over an hour before we finally, I was just going to give up, but every time... I was uh, just about to have rapid eye movement sleep. It would go off again, and, and that's that's dangerous, right? So anyway, so finally, one time we found it. It was behind the futon, plugged into an outlet that we couldn't see. Anyway, we got that sucker unplugged. Right, took out the battery. Apparently, it had. Um, apparently, the battery must have been failing to set off the chirping. So, anyway, a little bit of a restless night. So, our advice to you, if you want to stay in one of those yurts, is make sure that the heating is working before five o'clock. So, if it's not, you have someone to call. Also, there is air conditioning. There's a. Well, I shouldn't say yeah, air you conditioning. Turn the there's air a, conditioner on. There's a swamp cooler for the summer. There is. Yeah, doesn't help yeah. in the winter. Winter <laughs> no. much. Anyway, it's a very fun state. One thing I absolutely loved about it is there are two yurts in Goblin Valley, and they are at the end of the campground area, so you have some privacy. We actually had an amazing view, um, like a huge area all to ourselves with nobody, no other campers in the view. It was like we had this huge backyard. Um, so it was really cool. Now, the prices of these yurts run $150 a night. I originally thought that was kind of pricey but when you look at the hotel prices in moab it's actually probably a little cheaper to stay in the year if you can get it if you can reserve it yeah and i i looked up the other day i think that's the same price for the dead horse point state park yurts so yeah going right for a yurt Yes. 150 bucks. Right. And the other thing we should say, if you're interested, you do have to bring your own bedding. So your own sheets, if you want them, sleeping bags, pillows, whatever. So for you folks who are flying long distances, that might not be practical. Also, of course, you have to bring your own food because there is uh, there is no place to eat at 
at Goblin Valley or near Goblin Valley. That's right. All right, we have 20 places to talk about, and I figured out that we only have two and a half minutes to spend on each place if you want to keep the episode under an hour. So I was thinking I could set my phone timer to go off after two and a half minutes, and then we could hear the beep, and we have to move on to the next one. How's that? (laughs) How about no? (laughs) That fills me with anxiety that a beep's going to go off and I have to stop talking. (laughs) Well, it fills me with anxiety that this is going to be a three-hour episode. (laughs) So uh, we need to... uh, Keep it moving. All right. All right. Okay. 20 places. We're going to be talking about these places in kind of a geographical order in relationship to the national parks. So so if you're visiting Zion, we're going to talk about a couple places that are close to Zion because obviously there are probably very few people. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> there are probably very few people who have the kind of time it would take to see all five national parks and all of these 20 things. So you will, um, you can pick and choose on your next visit or your visits after that. All right, the first place we're going to talk about is Canera Falls, which is a hike. It's on Bureau of Land Management land. And this hike is less than an hour from Zion. It's actually located north by, um, kind of by Cedar City. Yeah, just south of Cedar City. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in a little town of Canaraville. It's a four-mile round-trip hike that leads you up uh, through Canera Creek, you go through little narrow canyons that are similar to, uh, I would say, the Zion Narrows. Not, not as dramatic, but yeah, it's certainly pretty. Yes, not as dramatic, not as long, and not as deep. I think when we did it, of course, it depends on water levels. When we did it, it was, you know, maybe between ankle and knee deep, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Yeah. So about 700 feet elevation gain. This is a beautiful hike, but you do need a permit now because it's gotten very crowded, very popular. So they issue 150 permits per day and it costs $12 per person. Yeah. And you can get those permits on uh, www.canarafalls.com. We also did an entire episode on this particular place. It's episode number 96. So if you want more details, you can go listen to that. Right. But this is an absolutely beautiful hike through a creek, then through a slot, then up this huge, used to be a ladder. Now they have built a very sturdy staircase that will take you up to the top level where where you will then wade through more of the creek, a little more of a slot canyon. This is a fun little adventure. Great for families. All right, now close to that, about 45 minutes away, is a beautiful national monument called Cedar Breaks. And this looks similar to, we think, to Bryce Canyon National Park. It does. If you look at photos uh, looking down into the national monument, it looks very similar to the amphitheater in Bryce Canyon. It's a smaller canyon. The amphitheater is smaller than, than Bryce. The amphitheater is about three miles long, uh, but it does go down 2,000 feet which is deeper than Bryce Canyon. But like Bryce Canyon, it has those colorful reddish pinkish spires and pinnacles and hoodoos. And when you are up there on the rim looking down, you are standing at over 10,000 feet in elevation. So it's cooler in the summer. And of course, it's going to get a lot of snow in the winter. When we were there, we did the South Rim Trail, which was spectacular. And it offers views in all directions, including into the amphitheater. The Spectra Point Viewpoint, which is uh, on the the South Rim Trail, 
it's at about the one mile mark. And at two miles, you hit the ramparts viewpoint. Uh, and then at the two and a half mile mark, you come to the Bartson viewpoint. And these are all spectacular. Now, the thing is, you can't hike down into this amphitheater like you can at Bryce Canyon. You have to stay on the rim, maybe because it's 2,000 feet down. But also along this trail, in addition to the incredible views, you will see bristlecone pine trees. Yeah, I love the bristlecone pine trees. They're several thousand years old. And one thing we should mention here is this park is open year-round. However, it gets a lot of snow. Yeah, and so beginning around mid-November every year, Highway 148 and the scenic road that goes through the park, those close due to snow. And if you are driving towards this area, um, you're going to need snow tires and chains from November 30th to March 1st. But a lot of people come up to this area to snowshoe, snowmobile, and cross-country ski. Okay, our next place to visit is Willis Creek Narrows. Now, this is about... 45 minutes from Bryce Canyon, and it's in the uh, Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument. And this is about a 2.8 mile out and back hike with really minimal elevation change. It looks like a little mini Zion Narrows. Well, right. Again, like Canera Falls, you are hiking through a creek through a slot canyon. So really fun, really pretty. Now this one, the creek is even more shallow than Canera Falls. It really, um, it didn't even come, really come up to our ankles, did it? I mean, it, it's very shallow. Right. So this is the easier one. Like if the Narrows would be the difficult one, Canera Falls would be the medium. This this is the easiest of the those three. Right. This Willis Creek Slot Canyon is about nine miles south of Cannonville, and you will turn off onto Scatumpa Road, if I'm saying that correctly. And it's about a six-mile drive along this dirt road. But actually, we thought we thought it was in good shape. I mean, we had no problems, and we saw a lot of passenger cars in the parking lot. Yeah, if the weather is good, meaning that the road's not wet, uh, I think you pretty much get there in, in any kind of car. Yeah, so it's open year-round, and so that's great because uh, there's a lot of deciduous trees, so in the fall, the colors are great, which is when we were there. Yes, but it was a little chilly in November, and parts of the creek were already starting to freeze up, so maybe maybe go in the summer. I would caution, though, if there is inclement weather in the area, like a threat of rain or certainly a, like thunderstorms or anything like that, I, I wouldn't do this both because of the road would get treacherous and being in a slot canyon when uh, there's rain in the forecast isn't a great idea. Right. And we're actually talking about a lot of slot canyons today on this episode, and we won't keep repeating that, but it's extremely important that you check the weather forecast and that that there isn't any rain in the forecast for any of the drainages that are going to be flowing into these slot canyons. Um, Now, one thing, this Willis Creek Trail actually is longer than three miles, but at about a mile and a half in, that's where the Narrows section ends, and most people turn around there, and that makes it uh, a three-mile round-trip hike. 
That's right. Uh, one more note, we should talk about footwear. Uh, you know, obviously you can wear whatever you want. I, I wore trail runners because I didn't want to get my hiking boots wet. And then when we got back to the truck, we just wrapped my shoes and your shoes in an empty, clean trash bag and just kind of kept them in the truck until we got home. So. Yeah, they might still be in the truck. <laughs> and they the- probably smell really good right about now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that was Willis Creek Narrows. It's free and you don't need a permit. All right. Our next place to visit is close to Willis Creek, which is Kodachrome Basin State Park. And, uh, you know, we have driven through this park a couple of times in the past, haven't really done a lot. But this last visit, maybe it was the time of year and the colors were changing, but uh, it's really a pretty park. It is beautiful. And I guess it got its name, Kodachrome Basin, uh, because of the vibrant colors that resemble Kodak film. And there are 67 monolithic stone spires that are called, I should have had you do this, map, but they're called sedimentary pipes. Yeah, sedimentary pipes. Yeah, that's <laughs> what they are, monolithic stone spires. Right. But this is a very, very beloved park to camp in. We always have people telling us that they camped in Kodachrome Basin. And we drove through the campgrounds. They were very well organized. There are several campgrounds, two that are fairly primitive, and then one that's established with water and and electric hookups. So if you're wanting a more remote and primitive camping experience, it has that as well. I could see why this is a favorite spot for people to camp. I can too. And there were some incredible views across the way to Bryce Canyon National Park. You could see Bryce Canyon. Also, this park has some hiking trails. It also, they offer horseback rides, which would be a unique and fun thing to do. And you know, the location to Bryce Canyon is great. So if you're a camper, you could easily stay in Kodachrome and then take day trips into Bryce Canyon. So not too far from Kodachrome Basin State Park is the little town of Escalani, and that's where you can pick up the Hole in the Rock Road. Now, this is a road, gravel road, that goes through the Grand Staircase Escalani National Monument. And actually, if you take it far enough south, it ends up in Glen Canyon National Recreation Area. Right. Now, this is a 62-mile one-way dirt road that runs from Escalani to the actual Hole in the Rock, which is located on the shore of Lake Powell. It follows the general route of the original Hole in the Rock expedition. And like you said, Matt, most of the road is in Grand Staircase Escalani, but the last five miles are within Glen Canyon National Recreation Area. And we've only driven probably the first half of it, which was fine and passable to most um, passenger cars. But they say that those last few miles are really rough. Like we said, it's 62 miles one way. We've just never had time in the plan to go drive that far, explore the areas and, and drive back out. But what we have done is several of the hikes that you can do off that road. Right. And that's why we're talking about it today. It's not so much that the road itself is spectacular, but it's the jumping off point for a lot of great hikes. Now, before we talk about those, one thing that you should do before you try to drive this road is in the town of Escalani is the Escalani Interagency Visitor Center. They have a fantastic visitor center there. They can tell you, first of all, the conditions of the road, if it's rained recently, if any you know flash floods have come through. And they can also give you information about some of these slot canyons that we're about to talk about. Uh, specifically, have they been flooded recently? 
So one of the trails that they told us about at the visitor center that we would not have known had we not uh, stopped there is Zebra Canyon. And the trailhead is about 7.8 miles down the road off to the right. And there's a little gravel area that, that you park there. And then you're hiking to the east across the road to Zebra Canyon. And that trail is about 5.2 miles round trip. It's not a very hard hike in terms of elevation gain or treacherous land that you have to hike over. No, it's not difficult, but you are in a remote area and the signage to Zebra Canyon is not great. In fact, you know, we did it years ago and there was actually no signage. So you have to make a couple of key turns and that's why you either want to have the Gaia app or some other GPS, or you want to have a map from the visitor center, because you, you will not be able to find this without help, is what we're saying. <laughs> yeah, we, we had Gaia, and we even had a little bit of trouble finding it, uh, a couple of false starts, because we were going down some dead-end canyons. But yeah, then we, we found it. Uh, we have heard from other people who hike this that there can be times when there's water in the canyon. When we were there, it just did, didn't happen to have any water, so we lucked out. We were able to hike all the way back in it without slopping through stagnant water. <laughs> right, which was a huge bonus. Now, here's the thing. Zebra Canyon is a very short slot. So even though the hike is 5.2 miles round trip, when you get to Zebra Canyon, it's very short. It's out and back. We would suggest, we didn't know this going in, but it's extremely narrow in a couple of places. So we would have, if we would have known this, we would have dropped our packs outside of the canyon before we entered because our packs, we had to take them off. We had to hold them above our heads. They were in the way. And for such a short slot, we didn't need anything in the packs. When you get towards the back of the slot canyon, the walls take on a really interesting striped look, hence the name Zebra Canyon. So another set of slot canyons that we've hiked to that, that are, are popular and we really enjoyed are Peekaboo and Spooky. So the trailhead for these hikes is 26.3 miles from the start of the Hole in the Rock Roads. Now, Peekaboo and Spooky Slot Canyons are sort of next to each other, if you will, accessed from the same trailhead. So you can do them individually out and back, or you can do them as a loop. So what you would do, you come to Peekaboo first, and then you have to scramble up into the canyon. And when you stand there and look at it, you, you would think like I did. <laughs> Oh my gosh, how, how the heck do you get up? But if you look, there are some hand and foot cutouts in the rock that will, you know, help you get up into the canyon. So then you hike through Peekaboo. Once you leave out the back, you'll come to a juniper tree and you go to the right following the cairns to the back entrance of Spooky. And then, you know, you'll go through Spooky and you'll come back out the front. And this entire loop is about three miles. That's right. Now, one thing we should say, when you get then to Spooky, or if you're going to do Spooky from, from the front entrance, there are a couple of tight squeezes. Extremely tight. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, we got through the, the first one. We actually entered Spooky from the front, 
got through the first one. And then uh, the second one kind of freaked us out a little bit. Yeah, this is not for people with claustrophobia. You know, we're turned sideways and trying to slide through. It's a tight fit. And again, you're going to be probably holding your backpack over your head. Now, there are no technical skills needed on this, no ropes, um, but there is some scrambling. So it's great fun. But if you are claustrophobic at all, you don't, you don't want to do this one. Yeah, yeah. It, it was a little tight for us. Yes, yes. All right. And there are other things to see and do along this road. There's a couple of other hikes uh, further down the road that are still in our bucket. We want to do the Golden Cathedral, the Coyote Gulch, the Reflection Canyon. So there's more things for us to see along this road. Right. This is, it's like a playground there. So a playground for people of all ages and abilities, depending on what you like to do. All right, so still in Grand Staircase Escalani National Monument is a great hike, a very popular hike called Lower Calf Creek Falls. Yeah, something uh, important detail here. It is different than Upper Calf Creek Falls. (laughs) Right, now this is a beautiful 126-foot waterfall that cascades down into this emerald pool. Um, It's very scenic and very beautiful. And it's a pretty easy hike to get there. It's six miles round trip. And you go through a lot of gorgeous scenery um, as you're hiking to the waterfall. Yeah, if I remember right, it's it's pretty flat. uh, A lot of uh, lush vegetation. Right. You can take your dog as long as it's on a leash. Also, in the summer, uh, people swim in this beautiful emerald pool. Now, when we did it, it was March, and and there was no way we were going to get in the water, but it was still beautiful to see. You know, it's one of those places where it doesn't matter what season you visit. It's beautiful in every season. Right. Definitely a destination hike. It, It is most spectacular when you get to the falls. When you leave the Lower Calf Creek Trailhead, if you're headed north, on Highway 12, you know, in the direction of Capitol Reef, you're going to come to the tiny town of Boulder. And this is where the turn off is to the Burr Trail. We originally had the Burr Trail as one of our 20 places, but it got bumped off after we visited Rainbow Bridge. So we'll just mention that it's a great scenic drive, as is Highway 12 to Capitol Reef. So you could do these two roads as a loop when visiting Capitol Reef National Park. Highway 12 is gorgeous. The Burr Trail is gorgeous. And you're going to just see diverse scenery along both of those routes. Okay, let's keep it moving. Okay. Uh, The next place we're going to take you to is Goblin Valley State Park. And this is north of Hanksville. And you would get to the turnoff for Goblin Valley State Park. And this is an amazing geological area. It's not very big, but it's known for its thousands of little hoodoos and mushroom-shaped rock pinnacles, and these are referred to as goblins. One of the most charming state parks you'll ever see, or public lands for that matter. And it's such a unique landscape that I guess there have been a lot of science fiction films made here amongst the goblins. People keep telling us that. We haven't seen any of them. But it's a great park. It does not take long to see. You know, obviously, we talked about camping in the yurt, but you could drive in park, you access down into the mushrooms, you just walk down a hill. So you could literally spend an hour there and get a really good taste of Goblin Valley. 
right? There's a couple of valleys. If you look at the map, it's Valley 1, Valley 2, and there's no specific trails in those two valleys. You can wander anywhere. I mean, there are a couple of places where, you know, the easiest way to get back is uh, you can tell people have, have kind of made a path. But yeah, you're free to wander through all of these interesting rock formations. Yes, and we would recommend, so a lot of people go down the first little area you come to is Valley 1. We would recommend going south to Valley 2. It's even more spectacular. I guess there's also, Matt, a Valley (laughs) 3, but that is further back. If you're going to go to Valley 3, it's going to take you most of the day to get there, explore, get back, and you need some navigation because, as you said, there are no trail markers out in this area. But a gorgeous park, and a lot of people also do the Goblin's Lair hike. And that is a an established trail. It's mm-hmm. about three miles round trip, and it requires a little bit of scrambling, although we've heard from people that uh, they've taken kids on it and they've, they've done just fine. But it's, uh, it's a, a four-limb hike. It's like a little beautiful slot canyon, and I guess light pours through the ceiling vents, Um, and lights it up in a really spectacular way. We have not done this one yet because we just simply haven't had time when we've been there. People also repel into Goblin's Lair and that you need to um, be part of a guided canyoneering tour. So maybe we'll put that on the list. (laughs) Right. Well, after you call and talk to the manager about the bunk beds, we may be banned from Goblin Valley State Park. (laughs) Could you use a different name? And not yeah. mine. Yeah. <laughs> this is Matt Smith. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's convincing. <laughs> uh, when you enter the park, there's a little, uh, well, there's a kiosk where you have to pay, and there's a, there's a couple of rangers there. So you can ask them details as well about how to get the most out of your visit to Goblin Valley State Park. And if you're camping like we did, or you're camping for a couple of days, there's also a disc golf course. Yes. In the park. I know. That sounds fun. Yeah. Kind of a random thing there. Now, Goblin Valley State Park is situated in or next to San Rafael Swell, which is um, managed by the Bureau of Land Management. Yeah, the San Rafael Swell is this uplift of land. And what makes this uh, interesting to visit is on the edge of the swell, where the erosion has happened over the years. It's created all of these little canyons, and those are fun to explore and to hike in. And I think people that have uh, off-road vehicles can can go up along the swell for quite a ways, find some dispersed camping areas, and explore little canyons that really don't have a lot of visitors. That's right. It's like a giant playground, and it's very remote in, in as far as there are no amenities out there. Congress designated the San Rafael Swell as a recreation area in 2019, so fairly recently. It is about uh, 217,000 acres, so we're talking about a big swath of land here. Now, one of the slot canyons that is more popular and a little easier to access because it's got a nice trailhead and a a little parking area is Little Wild Horse Canyon. And this is about five miles from Goblin Valley State Park. You can like almost see it from (laughs) from Goblin Valley, but five miles uh, in the desert isn't a long way. Uh, And we've, we've hiked this a couple of times. We hiked this recently up through Little Wild Horse Canyon and then hiked back. So we did it as an out and back this last trip. We've also hiked this as a loop. So you can go 
up Little Wild Horse Canyon, and then at the backside, there's a little bit of a, a primitive trail road that you follow, and then you come back on that loop through Bell Canyon. Yes. So two slot canyons in one outing. In one. Yeah. Yes. And you could do it the other direction too. Yes. And if you do that, that's an eight mile loop. So that's going to take you a while because it's kind of slow going through the narrow sections of the slot. But this is a great beginner slot canyon because it's easy. The walls are not as close together as some of these others that we've talked about. Not a lot of obstacles, a little bit of scrambling. This is a great one for families. Yeah. And of course, when there's rain in the forecast, it can be dangerous going in there because uh, flash floods come through there. And the reason I bring this up is that happens fairly often. And then it changes the canyon because it will wash boulders away. It'll place boulders where they weren't a few years before when you hiked it the last time. So that that keeps it interesting. We noticed a lot of differences when we hiked it just this few weeks ago as compared to five years ago. There were a lot of changes due to flash floods. If you are heading out this way, you want to make sure you have plenty of gas, food, and water because there is pretty much nothing out there to purchase. <laughs> That's right. From there, we're going to take you to Dead Horse Point State Park. And so we're going to drive towards the Moab area. Mm -hmm. And before you get to Moab, you turn off on Highway 313 and take that to Dead Horse Point State Park. It's another one of these state parks that once you get there, it feels, it has a national park feel to it. Well, it does. It's very similar to Canyonlands National Park, which is literally right next door to the state park. This is the Canyonlands um, Island in the Sky District. This is a fantastic state park in that it has really, I think, one of the most spectacular views we have ever seen from the end of the scenic drive. You, you drive the road to, it's called Dead Horse Point. And at that spot, you're standing about 2,000 feet above the Colorado River, above pinnacles and buttes and canyons. It is striking. It is. It's a great place to see both the sunrise and sunset. So mm -hmm. that's kind of the thing that people do. You can also do hiking. You can do mountain biking. The, the sky is very dark there. So it's a great stargazing park. And of course, you can camp here. Now, we, again, stayed in a yurt here in this park about two years ago. We did an entire episode about Dead Horse Point and our stay in the yurt. That's episode number 36, if you want more details. But one thing I wanted to mention, too, is there are some hiking trails in the park. Our favorite, we've done this a couple of times, is the West Rim Trail. Now, the whole trail from the visitor center is about three miles one way. It's the longest hiking trail in the park. But what we do, we did this last time, we drove to the end of the road to Dead Horse Point, and we got there an hour or two before sunset. Then we hiked from there the West Rim Trail, what, a mile or two, Matt? Yep. Then hiked it back and watched sunset. And there are some incredible views from the West Rim Trail. There's also an East Rim Trail. So anyway, this is a park that is definitely worth seeing. A lot of people go to Moab. They go there for all sorts of outdoor activities, also to see Canyonlands National Park. So definitely stop by Dead Horse Point State Park. Yes. This episode is sponsored in part by Rumpel, producing a full line of durable, premium, ultra-warm outdoor blankets and gear. 
Are you looking for gift ideas for someone special in your life? Someone who loves the national parks and could use a puffy blanket to stay cozy and warm on all their adventures? Well, yes, actually. I've been looking for gift ideas that you could get me, and I saw some beautiful new designs on the Rumpel website. I was talking to our listeners, and besides, we already own two Rumpel blankets. Well, sure, but just like the ones we already have, these new designs are made with recycled polyester and insulation that packs down small in its own bag. And they pair durable 20D ripstop nylon with a DWR finish that's water, stain, and odor-resistant. That's great. So our listeners can shop their line of over 140 prints and designs, including their National Park Collection, at rumple.com forward slash Bob and Sue. And they can use the code Bob and Sue for 10% off their first order. That's R-U-M-P-L dot com slash Bob and Sue. Now, another place we want to talk about, this is a hike near Moab. Um, It's on Bureau of Land Management land, and this is Corona Arch. That's right. It is not a a very difficult hike. It's about, oh, two and a half to three miles round trip. Not a ton of elevation gain, about 450 feet. Dogs can be on this trail, but they need to be leashed. The trailhead is off that potash road. Mm -hmm. And they call this the Little Rainbow Bridge because it it is a very, uh, very symmetrical photogenic arch. The arch itself is about 105 feet tall, 140 feet across in width. It's really stunning. The entire hike, even before you get to the arch, is beautiful because you've got all kinds of rock formations. Now, one thing, I thought this was a pretty easy hike. There are a few uphill sections. One has like a cable that you can hang on to, and then there's a short ladder. I thought they were both easy. They're pretty easy. Yeah. Yeah, I I don't know how people um, get their dogs up the ladder. Well, they probably do it similar to how you boost me up when we're in slot canyons. You know, you make a wide stance and you plant your feet and then you kind of squat down and lift with your legs and not your back. And, and then we get the rope and pull you out, <laughs> blocks and tackles, <laughs> pull you on up. You know, I'm sensing a theme here. <laughs> Are you trying to tell me something? Well, it is close to Thanksgiving time. <laughs> Okay, we still have a lot of items left, so we're going to keep it moving. So we're going to head south from Moab to a little place called Newspaper Rock State Historical Monument. It's a teeny tiny bit of public land, but it's definitely worth seeing, especially if you're going to the Needles District of Canyonlands, you're going to drive right past this. Yes, this is a 200 square foot rock, which is covered by hundreds of ancient Indian petroglyphs. Uh, it's one of the largest, best preserved, and easily accessed petroglyph site in the United States. So no hiking is required. You simply drive into the parking lot, get out of your car, and walk over to view this really incredible group of petroglyphs. Right. It's about a 100-foot hike to get to see the rock. <laughs> so if you're driving south out of Moab and taking that uh, Highway 191, and you're heading towards Monticello, you're going to turn right onto Highway 211. And this is the the turnoff to the Needles District of Canyonlands. 
and there will be signs for Newspaper Rock that you, you can't really miss it. It used to belong to the um, Bureau of Land Management, but in 1961, the state took it over and made it a state historical monument. And I just wanted to mention that this rock art uh, dates from 1500 years ago. The oldest art is attributed to the ancient Puebloan people. And then there is some more recent art on the rocks. You can tell because it's lighter in color. And that artwork is attributed to the Ute people who still live in the Four Corners area. So we stop every single time we go. We take the same pictures. We take the same videos. One of my favorite things, there is a bison in and amongst the drawings. So right. I love that. Yeah. Okay, uh, keeping it moving, uh, we're going to take you to Hovenweep National Monument. Now, Hovenweep is about an hour southeast of the town of Monticello, and it was once home to over 2,500 people. This is an incredible place with prehistoric villages. Six of them that were built between A.D. 1200 and 1300. So you can go and see these well-preserved stone structures. And they include like multi-story towers and what they call a castle. Uh, When you go to the visitor center, the main hike is right out the back door of the visitor center. They've set this up really nicely. So you walk out the doors and you can hike the square tower group loop. Yeah, what's different about these Puebloan ruins is that a lot of uh, the ruins that you see in the American Southwest are built into cliffs. These are all built on top of uh, a valley. And so they're not built into the cliffs. They're they're freestanding buildings. So that's pretty interesting because there's a lot more I don't know, construction that you can see. And you take a two-mile loop trail, begins at the Canyon Overlook, and it loops around Little Ruin Canyon. Now, this is a pretty primitive trail, and it takes you over slick rock. Um, But as you wind around the canyon, you pass within, gosh, like five to ten feet of most of the square tower group structures. And you can see them from different angles. And one of these, um, I think my favorite, probably everybody's favorite, is Hovenweep Castle. And if you don't want to do a two-mile loop, you can just walk out to see Hovenweep Castle and walk back. And that's that's under a mile round trip just to go to see the castle. Yeah, but I, I would encourage people to do the whole three-mile loop. I, I didn't find it that hard. There is one section where you do you hike down into the canyon and back up, but uh, it, it wasn't that strenuous. Now, there are a few other sites within this park that you have to drive to. They're not right there at the visitor center, and you have to drive some primitive roads to get there. One of the ones that we did a few years ago was um, Cajon, the Cajon ruins, and that was cool to see. It was. Uh, they were kind of a little bit hard to find. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Hovenweep ruins are kind of scattered throughout that area and some even into Colorado. Well, yes, I wanted to mention that, too, because if you don't have time to see Hovenweep while you're in Utah, but you're doing a trip to Mesa Verde in Colorado, you could add on Hovenweep to that because it's only about an hour's drive from Mesa Verde. That's right. Okay, let's keep her going. Um, We're going to talk about the Bears Ears National Monument. Yes, now this um, public land is managed by, it's actually co-managed by, the Bureau of Land Management, also Manti LaSalle National Forest, and the Five Tribes of the Bears Ears Commission. And we're going to be traveling Highway 95 going from east to west through Bears Ears. The drive alone is extremely scenic. 
That's right. And most of the area in this national monument is a little hard to get to in the, in the sense that there are gravel roads and some, some roads that you really can only get with kind of these side-by-side off, truly off-road vehicles. But one place you can get to is House on Fire. And this is um, a set of ancestral Puebloan ruins uh, that, that are in the National Monument. And it's called House on Fire because of the patterns on the rocks above these cliff dwellings that in the right lighting kind of makes it look like the house is on fire. They say that this lighting effect usually happens around midday, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, which is when we happened to be there. We didn't realize that. We were just lucky. And it does actually really look like the the place is on fire. It's very cool to see. Now, it's located in Mule Canyon along the Cedar Mesa. And it's easy to get there, and it's a pretty easy hike. Um, you do have to. There's a, a self-serve pay kiosk. You have to pay for a backcountry permit. It's $2 per person. And then once you find the spot to park, it's about a mile hike through the canyon to get to um, House on Fire. Yeah, you're hiking along the creek. Mm -hmm. Um, And depending, you know, if it's wet season, it might be a little bit muddy. But yeah, we thought it was a pretty easy hike to House on Fire. And I think there are other ruins if you keep going down the trail further. Yeah, I guess the canyon goes for more than four miles. And so you can look for other ruins. Now, again, these ruins are tucked up into the cliffs. So it's n- you're not just going to all of a sudden come across one. You have to be looking to the right and to the left up in the cliffs. If you Google it, you can find directions on exactly where to turn and where to park. We won't go into all that right now. And if you're wondering why it's called Bear's Ears, uh, there are two towering buttes that rise up right in the middle of the National Monument. And from certain angles, these buttes look like ears of a bear. And I guess all of the Native American people who have lived in the area, they all had the same name in their language and translated, it means bear's ears. So once you see those two twin buttes, you can't unsee them, (laughs) right? Right. I mean, we kept seeing them everywhere we went along in that area. It's very cool. Okay, so not too far from House on Fire is another national monument, actually Utah's very first national monument, which is Natural Bridges. Yes, it was established back in 1908 to protect some of the most impressive natural bridges in the world. There are three main bridges there, although we have seen some others as we've hiked through there. Those are called Kachina, Oachomo, and Sipapu. And this monument is at an elevation of 6,500 feet, so it's a little cooler and a little wetter than the surrounding area. Right. And it's open all year round. The main thing to do there, and we'll break this down into three different choices. So there are, there's a scenic drive and there are some great overlooks to these natural bridges. So one thing you could do, it's a one-way scenic drive. You could stop at each of the overlooks and get out, go look at the view. You're actually looking down into the canyon, take your photos. Okay. That's one thing. That's easy. Or you could take it a step further. You could drive to each of the overlooks and you could hike down to the base of these bridges, right? Each one has a trail. Now, these involve some ladders <laughs> and some holes pecked into the rocks. Yeah, and some steps. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it's uh, there's a 
there's a fair amount of elevation change for the short hike you um, are going to go down to those bridges, but it's it's a good workout. Now, the third option, uh, which is what we did, is you can hike down one of these overlooks, and then you can hike through the canyon and come up at a different natural bridge, and then there is a mesa trail that you hike back to your car. So depending on how far you want to hike. We have done the Sipapu Bridge to Kachina Bridge loop. That whole thing back to our car is just under six miles and about a thousand feet of elevation change. Yeah. And that was, um, that was all we cared to do. Yeah. Uh, uh, that I mean, that seemed like a pretty good hike, even though it was only about six miles. However, you can do uh, the full 12 mile loop that takes you then to all of the bridges. And, you know, that would be fun. Ideally, to do that, if you had two cars and you put one at the Sipapu Bridge, which is the first one you come to, and then you left one at the Oachomo Bridge Overlook, then you wouldn't have to hike over the Mesa Top, which is many miles. So that would cut it down from 12 miles. That would be ideal. Of course, we're never there with two cars. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, yeah, do not miss Natural Bridges National Monument if you're in this area. It's in the National Park Service. It's a spectacular public land. And still very much unknown, I feel like. The couple times we've been there, we've hardly seen any other humans, which yeah. was also great. Yeah. All right. So we're going to go from uh, natural bridges. We're going to head south to the Monument Valley area. And in order to get there, we're going to drive the Moki Dugway. This is part of Utah's State Route 261. And so you have a nice well-maintained paved highway that takes you south until you get to the top of Moki Dugway. And uh, then you have a, a gravel road that t- <laughs> takes you down the side of the cliff. And a few warning signs, just in case you weren't prepared. Uh, but yes, this road, which they consider an engineering marvel, it drops 1,200 feet from the top of the mesa down to the valley floor. Um, and this section of dirt road, which is basically switchbacks, it's three miles long with a gradient of up to 10%. Yeah, and I wouldn't try it pulling a trailer. Oh, I, no. I just wouldn't. Uh, absolutely not. There's no place to turn around on this road. Um, there are also no guardrails on the switchback. So that's, I think, what makes people nervous to drive this. Yeah, and if you're wondering why there's a road that goes down a cliff uh, back in the 1950s to fuel our nuclear programs, there was a lot of uranium mining in the area. And so to take uranium ore from the mines up on Cedar Mesa down to the Mexican hat area, uh, they needed to somehow get down this cliff. So they dug a road into the side of the cliff. It sounds daring, but if you're careful... I don't think this is a treacherous drive. No, I don't think so either. I think the most treacherous thing that we have found, we've done it many times, is that there are people who drive this and then they freak out while they're driving and they are literally going two miles an hour. You can't get around them because the road is so narrow and it's dangerous to try to pass people so close to the edge. So that's actually been the biggest obstacle that we've encountered are people who seem to be paralyzed with fear. Yeah, or just deciding to stop in the middle of the road and and just take in the scenery. It is a road, a public utility. It's part of a highway. You got to... you got to let people pass. But here's the thing, too. We didn't mention the scenery when you're coming down or even going up. The scenery 
looking south is spectacular because you're looking at Valley of the Gods, which we're going to talk about, and you can kind of see Monument Valley in the distance. So you've got rock spires, you've got the Red Desert, you can see Highway 261 stretching out, and it's absolutely, absolutely stunning. So something definitely to do if you're in this area. And now if you get to the bottom of Moki Dugway and continue on a few miles, you're going to get to the turnoff for Goosenecks State Park, which is definitely something worth stopping, even if you only stop for, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes because the overlooks are spectacular. Well, right. And this is a quick stop, but it is definitely worth, I think it's $5 to get in, $5 per car. And so what you're looking at, it's what geologists call an entrenched river meander. And the San Juan River is twisting and turning through the deep canyons of the Colorado Plateau. Um, So imagine if you've been to Horseshoe Bend, it looks like that only it's a double meander. That's why it's called goosenecks, because there are two of them right next to each other. So this is worth a um, stop to to get off the highway, look at the overlooks. That's pretty much the only thing to do, although it's also a a fairly popular place to camp because it's secluded and it's got great views. So we do see RVs a lot of times camp there. Incredible view looking down on these goosenecks. So don't miss this one. It's definitely worth the stop. And then just literally right next door, just to the east of there, is the beautiful Valley of the Gods, which is um, on Bureau of Land Management land. Now, the Valley of the Gods has a 17-mile dirt and gravel road through it. And oftentimes, we're in the area and we think, oh, we don't have time to go you know, drive slowly for 17 miles. And every time we do it, we think this is fantastic. It really is a peaceful and beautiful drive. We've heard it called the poor man's Monument Valley, <laughs> but we think that does not give it enough credit. It is absolutely beautiful. You're driving back through, again, towers and buttes and sandstone rock outcroppings, and there are places to pull over. Now, a lot of people disperse camp back there, which would be fun. That's right. And people do pull trailers through there. They take RVs. Uh, I think if you drive slow and carefully, you'll be fine. If it has been raining or the roads are wet, I would be a little careful with that. So there are two entrances. One is off of Highway 163 and one is off of 261. When you enter off of 163, almost immediately, you go through this dry creek bed. So I could see that there could definitely be water, or maybe there was a little bit of water in it last time. Yeah, there's a little bit. That would be your first warning. (laughs) If you cannot get through this first wash, then turn around and go back. But I think it's passable for most passenger cars. Yeah, the thing to remember about this area is there are no facilities. It's a pack in, pack out. You're not going to find water or electricity in there, but it is a place that people will camp out there for a week just for the solitude. And just note, if you did have car trouble or you had a flat tire, you're going to be pressed to find somebody to come and help you. So you want to be somewhat self-sufficient on that end. So after you drive through Valley of the Gods, you're going to want to continue heading southwest to Monument Valley. Monument Valley is on Navajo land. So this is not a public land, but we had to include it in our 20 places because it's so incredible. That's right. And the drive to Monument Valley is beautiful. Yes. You drive through the little town of Mexican Hat, then you climb up a little bit. And as you're starting to see the monuments, the buttes in the distance, 
there's an interesting spot in the road where you have it kind of this territorial view of the buttes in the distance. The highway is kind of goes down and um, there's one part called Forest Gump Point. And uh, you'll notice, even though this is a highway, you'll notice people pulled off on the side of the road. And yes, there are people wandering in the middle of the highway <laughs> with cars driving fast right right past them. Right. It's called Forrest Gump Point because if you saw the movie, the 1994 Oscar-winning movie starring Tom Hanks, in this movie, he had been running for three years, two months, 14 days, and 16 hours when he reached this point, this hill that overlooks Monument Valley. This is around mile marker 13 on Highway 163. So at this point, Forrest proclaims to his followers that he was done running, and he he stopped right there at this point. So now all of these moviegoer fans, and really anybody who just loves to to look at the scenery, stops, takes a photo. A lot of them go into the middle of the road and do things. Like- <laughs> they, they do. They, they will pose not really aware of the timing of the cars speeding towards them. We've seen people literally just wander into the highway and, and almost get hit by cars. I think they've actually lowered the speed. They put lower speed limit signs, but I mean, like it's 45 miles an hour. Yeah. So it's not like 10 miles an hour. So that's Forrest Gump Point. Now, a lot of people are, are confused by Monument Valley because do you have to pay? Is it free? So Highway 163 that runs through Monument Valley is a public highway. That is free to drive the entire stretch. Now, you will come to a turnoff to Monument Valley Tribal Park. And at that turnoff, you are crossing the state line into Arizona. And the Tribal Park is not free. It costs $8 per person. And there are a couple of reasons why you might want to pay the money and go in and see Monument Valley Tribal Park. You know, well, first of all, if you just go to the visitor center and there's a visitor center there, it's nice visitor center. They also have a trading post that sells incredible Navajo arts and crafts. But the patio of the visitor center, I think, is the best place to take photographs of the monuments. Stunning, stunning views. And that's the other reason to stop is because not only do you have a much closer up view of these buttes and towers and spires, but then there's also a 17 mile, very rough dirt road that runs right through these spires. So you can drive it yourself if you... (laughs) are brave. (laughs) Or you can take a guided tour that's offered by Navajo guides. They have like open air um, vehicles that you can sit in and you can let them do the driving. That would be an extra cost. I don't know how much that is. We've driven that 17 mile road. It it was pretty rough, but it was interesting to go back there and, and see the monuments. I think it's it's worth doing once. Yes, absolutely. And the other thing that you can do if you pay the money and go into the tribal park is you can go on a hike. There is a hiking trail there called the Wildcat Trail. Now, note, this is the only trail in Monument Valley that you are allowed to hike without a Navajo guide. So this is your chance. We've done it a couple times. It's a great hike. Yeah, and that trail takes you around one of the mittens. I think it's the West Mitten. It's about a four-mile total uh, hike, and it's interesting because you get to see the mitten. The reason it's called a mitten is it looks like the butte has a thumb sticking out, <laughs> um, and you get to see that butte from all angles. Obviously, you're you're hiking around it. 
So the park also offers Jeep tours and horseback riding tours. So if that's something that interests you, you can do that as well. And if you want to stay in the park, they have they have the View Hotel, uh, which the rooms all face the valley, which I, I guess those are spectacular views. They also have some cabins at the View Campground that we've looked at that we want to stay in. That's in the bucket. It is. We've tried a few times last minute to stay there when we were passing through, and of course they were sold out. But yes, that would be amazing because, of course, you'd get to see the sunset um, in Monument Valley and the sunrise. So that would that would be pretty spectacular, I would imagine. All right, we're going to go from Monument Valley to Rainbow Bridge National Monument. And this is in the Glen Canyon National Recreation Area, even though it's its own 160-acre monument. Right. And now technically from Monument Valley, and you're headed towards Page, which is where this boat tour takes off from, you're now in Arizona. Technically, you are leaving from Waweep Marina for this boat tour to Rainbow Bridge, which is also in Arizona. But then you quickly cross into Utah and Rainbow Bridge National Monument is in Utah. And this is a hard geological site to get to. Uh, You can either hike for days and carry all your stuff with you, or you can take a boat tour along Lake Powell. And then when when you get to the dock close to Rainbow Bridge, it's only a mile hike. Right. Now, we did an entire episode on this last week because we loved, loved this so much. So episode number 141, we won't go into a lot of detail here. But if you missed that episode, there is a concessionaire for Rainbow Bridge. It's um, Aramark. They leave from Waweep Marina. They will take you on a three-hour boat journey to the National Monument. You have about 90 minutes there. You have to hike a little over a mile to get there. Uh, then they will take you back a couple of hours to Waweep. So all day and unbelievably spectacular. Right. This is uh, one of the largest, if not the largest, natural bridge in the world. It spans 275 feet wide. It's 290 feet tall. Most of the other arches and bridges you see in Utah would fit underneath this. So it's it really is spectacular. So consider the boat tour. Absolutely. And this this monument is on Navajo land also, just like Monument Valley. You know, I think it goes without saying that these are very sacred places to the Navajo people. So as we all visit them, we need to make sure to be respectful of their culture and their traditions and their rules that they have in place. Is that it? Are we done? One more, Matt. One more. We have made it to number 20. How are we doing on the time? Uh, We are at three hours and 20 minutes, (laughs) so you're going to have to edit this quite a bit. (laughs) Everyone has left us. It's just pretty much you and I. (laughs) We could talk about personal stuff. Like my weight. (laughs) Let's go back and talk about that. I I like that. (laughs) You're the one who keeps bringing that up. I, I have it on record that I'm not the one bringing that up. Okay, so we have one more place. Yes, the final place we wanted to mention is very near and dear to our hearts, and that is Buckskin Gulch. It's the first slot canyon we ever hiked and one of the longest continuous slot canyons in the world. It runs for about 16 miles. It does. We don't always hike all of the 16 (laughs) miles or ever, do we? But it is a fantastic hike to try if you're ever in the area. So from Page, you head west on Highway 89, and then on the south side of 89, about halfway between Page and Kanab, 
is the turnoff to House Rock Valley Road, and that's going to go south. And you follow this gravel road for about eight and a half miles to the Wire Pass Trailhead to begin your hike. And do not go to the trailhead marked for Buckskin Gulch. I mean, you can. So there's two ways to enter the gulch. We go past that trailhead to the Wire Pass Trailhead and then take Wire Pass into Buckskin Gulch. Right. And the reason people do that is because the very first section of Buckskin Gulch is not as scenic as further down. And so people come in at Wire Pass, and then they are immediately in the gorgeousness of of Buckskin Gulch. So after you park at the Wire Pass Trailhead, and by the way, there is a parking fee there. It used to be $5. I don't know if that's gone up or not. I don't know what the fee is now. I always keep a combination of small bills with us whenever we uh, do our road trips, just because I've paid many of $5 fees with a $20 bill before. So uh, (laughs) yeah, so take take some change with you to pay the fee. And once you've parked, you follow a wash for what seems like forever. It's actually about 1.3 miles to the entrance of the Slot Canyon. Now, this first short slot that you come to isn't Buckskin Gulch. It's actually Wire Pass, but it will take you to the confluence with Buckskin Gulch. And the Wire Pass hike is great too. I mean, that's, that's very interesting. It is. And it used to have a sort of this little dry pour off that you had to slide down. I don't know, not not huge, like what, six feet, maybe? Yeah, six. But now they have built a really nice wooden ladder there that you can climb down. So no sliding is required anymore through wire pass. Yeah, until the next uh, flash flood comes and takes that away. That's true. Yeah, but then once you come out of Wire Pass, you're in kind of this open area and Buckskin Gulch is off to the left. And so when you're standing there looking at it, you want to go to the right and start hiking Buckskin Gulch. And, you know, you can obviously hike for as long as time will allow and then just turn around, come back and retrace your steps. Right. We always turn right. So that's south. And we hike for about two hours and then turn around. Uh, And if you're lucky, there won't be any standing water in Buckskin Gulch. We've uh, hiked it, I don't know, five or six times. And a couple of times we found water. One time we found a lot of water. It kept us from going very far at all. One time it was muddy. And we've had a couple of times where it's perfectly dry. And that's an absolute bonus. And we don't even know specifically what month to recommend that it would be dry Obviously not during monsoon season, which is kind of July and August, because we've gone so many randomly different months. I guess we just got lucky. Yeah, I think your best bet would be spring, early spring. Mm -hmm. Um, It seems like that's when it's been driest. You can also call uh, the BLM uh, ranger offices in the area. There's one in Kanab. There's also one right off of Highway 89. Sometimes those rangers can tell you just over the phone if they're standing water. Right. And, you know, as one of them explained to us once, the canyon doesn't flood that often, but when it does, it takes a long time for those pools of water to dry out because it gets such little sunlight. Uh, You know, it's shaded in there. And so those pools of water hang around for a long, long time. Right, right. So another thing that people do, which is on my list, I think would be fun, is they hike all the way through Buckskin as a backpacking trip. And there are various destinations, you know, depending on how far you want to backpack. The furthest one out is Lee's Ferry. Um, I think that's a really long (laughs) backpacking trip. And just note, you do need a permit to camp anywhere. 
Now, this slot canyon, it's non-technical, and it really never gets narrow, so you don't need ropes, you don't have to repel in, there's really no scrambling, and, and there's no squeezes. So it's a pretty good little hike to do for all skill levels uh, when it's dry. Yes, and you know, it's a great first-time slot canyon. This one is actually easier than Little Wild Horse Canyon, I think, because Little Wild Horse had some scrambling, and it's a very easy um, slot canyon, at least the first few miles are. Yeah, and it's maybe one of our favorite because it was, I think, the first real slot canyon we hiked in, and we have special memories of it. But yeah, it's spectacular. Yeah, the lighting in this canyon is absolutely beautiful. And uh, Matt and I were talking a few weeks ago as we hiked through Little Wild Horse about how every slot canyon in Utah looks different and each one is unique. I was saying that I think if I were just dropped into one of these slot canyons, I'd be able to tell which slot I was in based on the color of the rock and the lighting and what the ground looks like. I mean, they are all so different. Well, that's what we're going to do next summer is uh, I've organized an outing for you and we're going to blindfold you, drop you by (laughs) helicopter into three different slot canyons and we're going to see if you can tell where you're you're at. It's kind of like the amazing race. but yeah. yeah. Okay, so that's going to wrap it up for our 20 places. We did have kind of a hard time narrowing it down because, of course, there are way more than 20 great places in southern Utah. That's right. It takes um, several trips to get it all in, and I think that's probably best because if you try to fit too many things in on a single trip, you kind of get uh, you kind of get worn out, and then it's, it's not as special. Exactly. All right, and thank you so much for joining us today as we traveled through Southern Utah. We hope that uh, some of these places sparked your interest and gave you some ideas for future trips. And thanks to all of you who have subscribed to our Patreon account. This podcast wouldn't be possible without your financial support. We just published a video gift guide on Patreon with some gift ideas for the outdoorsy people on your list. And speaking of gift ideas, our books would make a wonderful gift for anyone who likes to explore our public lands. We have Dear Bob and Sue, plus Dear Bob and Sue Seasons 2 and 3, and let's not forget Dory's Ho, all of which are waiting to be purchased on Amazon and wrapped up with a big bow. That's right. They're just, they're sitting at Amazon, Mm -hmm. ready to go. Waiting. Yeah. Just waiting. waiting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And of course, as we head into the holiday season, Karen and I wish you and yours all the very best. 